Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Good to have all of you here with us, as well as those over in our campuses in Stevens Point and Appleton, as well as all those who watch us on church online. Tonight we're doing something new and different. Uh, we're Facebook living this, living it, Facebook, whatever you call it, Facebook Live, right? So uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't crash and burn. But that's all right. People can actually send me comments and questions. Although I probably won't read them. <laughs> I'll get confused. But anyway, we are, uh, uh, for those actually on Facebook Live, a lot of people who follow me there, almost 200,000 people, uh, do so because they know me as a relationship speaker. But I'm also a pastor, and we thought, well, this is our Wednesday night Bible study and our Sunday services. Now that this new technology allows us to stream out through the Facebook thing, we thought we'll try that for a while and see how it goes. So that's what we're doing. So if you're up for a Bible study, hang on. If not, you might want to click away. <clears throat> All right, so now what we're doing in our Bible studies, we're going through the New Testament, and we're going through it in chronological order. In other words, in the way that it actually happened. The Bible is not laid out in chronological order, neither the Old or the New Testament. I don't know why not. I'm sure somewhere someone has a reason I'm sure I won't care, whatever the reason is. I think it's highly frustrating and confusing, as if it isn't hard enough to understand sometimes. If you just start from Genesis and start reading all the way through, particularly in the Old Testament, it won't make any sense, because it's all over the place about where, what comes which, and they're talking about things that are just totally out of order. Uh, the New Testament isn't nearly as confusing, because the first historical part of it is all in order, the Gospels and then the book of Acts, then the epistles pop up all over the place, and they don't necessarily have to be in order, and it does end with revelations, so it feels like it's more in order, but still, it's still not. So what we did is, uh, as we're going through, uh, we're going through it in the order that has happened. Um, we're following along in the book of Acts, and every place in the book of Acts where one of these letters were written, we stopped and we went through the letter, then we came back, and we're doing this one verse at a time. Now, <clears throat> we've gone through... Uh, uh, the travels of Paul, Paul was really the main uh, person who brought the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Uh, pretty much the early Christians all hung out in Jerusalem and went, and when they did go out, they went pretty much just to Jewish places. But Paul came along, and that's when it just started going all over the place. Uh, he has three missionary journeys that he's gone on. The first one was a, a fairly short run like here, second one you know, a little bit longer this way, and now the third one, he's going, you know, all the way, all over. well, the second one came like this, and then here, and then the third one, he's coming now, so he's in Ephesus, where he's been, uh, where he's ministering the gospel, stay there for at least a year, uh, when he's there, he hears about problems over in the Corinthian church uh, that he had had on a previous trip, uh, so he writes the first letter of the Corinthians, which is actually the second letter of the Corinthians, because in the first letter, he talks about a letter before that one. Nobody has it. It's the missing letter. So anyway, to us, it's 1 Corinthians. Uh, and he basically just slams them. I mean, we read through that. I mean, he was just, what's the matter with you guys? And he's very strong over numbers of issues. Uh, he gets up about here as he's going to continue his journey. When he gets up here in Macedonia, uh, that's when he hears from Titus and whatever that, boy, these guys in Corinth, they really freaked about the letter and, you know, uh, so he writes Second Corinthians. And uh, we're almost done now with the second letter of the Corinthians. And in the letter, he's much more talking about theology and, and, and how this whole thing works between God and man and the Christian faith, much more than he did in the first letter of the Corinthians where he pretty much just slapped him upside the head because of the stupid things they were doing. But as he's writing the second letter, he keeps pausing, and every once in a while, he goes into this real defensive mode about who he is. The reason he is is because there's people down there who are giving him a really hard time. Uh, can't imagine someone giving a pastor a hard time, but that's what they did. And they're just giving off grief. Who is this guy? You know, Because other guys came along who were, in some measures, more impressive than Paul. It's in 1 Corinthians here that we read where Paul said, you know, I'm really not that great of a public speaker. That was one of the knocks on him which is stunning when you think of how incredibly intelligent he was and how he wrote virtually the whole New Testament, you know, the biggest part of it. But apparently he wasn't that stunning of a public speaker. So these other guys came along who were very eloquent and la, 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 la. And, you know, as is human nature, we try to, we get attached to or, or attracted to 
things that sparkle more, right? You know, it's like dumb fish, they, whatever sparkles in the water, they want to eat it, you know, so, so they're sparkling after these other guys. Some of them were good guys, but some of them were bad guys. Paul's talking about calling them false prophets and stuff like that, and so he's uh, hammering them for getting off base and kept defending himself against their criticisms. So he would talk for a while and then he'd defend himself, he'd talk for a while and he'd defend himself. So anyway, we get to the end of the letter of, uh, to the second Corinthians and the last few chapters here, he's just in total defense mode and he is just really uh, arguing and making his case before them, you know, uh, and, and saying that he's, he's never done this for money. All, all the accusations that he's had against them, uh, he refutes, okay? So now we're in chapter 12. There's only 13 chapters. We're almost done, about a page and a half here in, in my Bible. So Paul writes in verse 12, verse 1, or chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting, although there is little to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I must go on boasting. I mean, basically what he's doing is by defending himself, he says, you know, I'm speaking like a fool. I don't know what I'm doing. You're making me do this, basically, he says. So he has got to discuss all the ways that God has used him and, you know, it's something that you wouldn't normally do, but he felt he had to do it because of all the pressure he's getting. So we get to 12, chapter 12. He says, I got to go on. I got to keep going. He says, now let's talk about dreams and revelations. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. In a minute, we're going to see why most Bible scholars think he's talking about himself. I'll explain that in just a minute. But he's talking in a third person here. I know this man who was caught up to the third heaven. What does that mean? Yeah, you're really getting the weeds here. He's, he's just into the, the supernatural and into the spirit world at a level most of us will never begin to comprehend and understand. So, uh, he, he's caught up there whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I, I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Now, at this point, you would think, well, clearly he's talking about somebody other than himself. It's possible he may be. But as we continue, he says, even if I should... Uh, choose to boast, uh, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of the surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, so now all of a sudden, he's talking about these great, he just talked about someone who had these incredible revelations. Whether or not he's speaking about himself, most scholars think he was, but let's say for the sake he wasn't, he's at least acknowledging he has had incredible revelations. And he's had so many incredible spiritual revelations. Again, he's doing this in defense of the people saying, ah, he's a nobody. You know, how can you say I'm a nobody? Man, when I was you, man, we did miracles. We did all kinds of stuff. He's defending himself. I have suffered. I, have, I haven't been in this for the money. I mean, he's just really laying his heart out, laying out his case for why he's not taking advantage of these people. He doesn't know why they're coming against him. And then he goes to the fact that, man, I have revelations that are off the charts. If he's speaking about himself, or at least as an example, he says, man, I've seen stuff I'm not even allowed to say. Well, that's kind of frustrating. I'm like, well, tell us what happened. You know, what did you see? What was there? Right? Everybody wants to know, you know, what's there? What happens when we leave? You know, and all of a sudden he says, man, I've seen stuff I can't even tell you people. <sighs> all right. So, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Well, that's lovely. All right, so he has this incredible revelations. Again, whether it's this guy he talks about, or as most college scholars think, he's just really talking about himself, you know, trying to avoid any reference to himself for fear of being accused of being proud or anything. But even if he is talking about somebody else, he's basically saying, I too have had these kind of revelations. And because I've had such incredible revelations, God gave me this thorn in my flesh to make me miserable or to, to torment me, which I presume would make me miserable, all right? What was the thorn? All kinds of speculation. The bottom line is, we don't know. Nobody knows. To argue about such things is such stupidity. Only Christians argue about things that don't matter. Who cares, who cares? Well, it was this, it was that, it was, you know, it was, maybe it was his wife. He didn't have a wife, I don't know, he's just, you know. 
Someone said he had poor eyesight. That was his thorn in the flesh. Other people said, you know, he had a rash. I mean, we don't know. All he knows is that this was, this was not good. He was being tormented. So because he's had such incredible revelations, to keep his feet on the ground, he has this thing, whatever it is, that makes his life basically suck. So he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But the Lord's answer was this. It's not an answer we like to hear. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, suck it up, buttercup. Okay? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Oh, man, who wants to hear that? You're suffering, you're struggling and everything, and you pray out to cry out to the Lord. The Lord says, yeah, I know all about it. Too bad. My grace is sufficient. All right? When you really are struggling, when you feel weak, that's when I show up in the strongest way. He goes, okay. Okay. So... Uh, that is why, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, so he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties, for when I am weak, then am I strong. We get the analogy. I got to tell you, I tend to not delight in insults, <laughs> hardships, or any of the other. This is not my idea of a good time, okay? Uh, I will say, though, uh, and uh, to even, you can't even begin to compare yourself with, with this man, but I have noticed at times when I have preached the worst sermons of my life, I, I mean, I am mortified. I mean, it's one thing to sit and listen to a bad sermon. It's another thing to listen to a bad sermon and you're the guy giving the sermon. <laughs> you know, and it's like you can't stop. Who is this idiot talking? It's me. Good Lord, I can't stop. This is awful. This isn't making any sense to anybody because I don't even know what I'm saying. And nothing's coming out right and it's horrible. And I'm telling you, there are times where I am saying, if you ever see me right after I preach, sulk away to the back. I promise you, I shouldn't tell you this, but that's when I think, oh, that was horrible. They're going to they're gonna figure this out. All right. I'm going to get a letter from somebody. They're going to string me up, you know. I'm going to be unemployed next week, you know. So they finally, they, I finally revealed what a moron I am. It's just, and then I'll finally work my way around the front, and the number of people who come up to me and say, man, that was the most amazing message I have ever heard. And I'm thinking, were you here? <laughs> right? Because I'm like, how is this even possible? And I, it happens, not all the time, because I tend to think I do a wonderful job. But there are days where it's just horrible. I feel bad. I go home. I feel bad. My wife tells me, oh, what's the matter with you? It was, it was horrible today. It was just horrible. I can't tell you what was I doing. And then the emails come in. Oh, man, that changed my life. That was incredible. And I go, wow. So apparently, God can overcome our weaknesses. <laughs> Thanks be to God. All right? So Paul now, he feels bad for saying all this stuff. And he says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. You bunch of nimrods, you know? And it's really funny, the way they write, you have to remember, it, they wrote in a way that was very disadvantageous. We can write in ways that I, and I frequently write things, and I think, oh, that's terrible, and I just go back and I cut it out and put it in another paragraph, and you know, they didn't have that, they wrote it, and they're like, what are you gonna, they didn't even have whiteout back then, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so maybe if they did, he would've just went out and straightened it out, but he's already written all this, and he goes, Oh, I don't even know why I'm telling you people this. You know, you made me do this. He says, I ought to have been commended by you. I should be getting praise from you, uh, for I'm not in the least inferior to these so-called super apostles, even though I'm a nothing. I persevered in demonstration, in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. He's being a smart aleck. He gets very sarcastic. I pointed out last time. When he gets into these modes, he's, he's a little grumpy. He is, but can you hardly blame him? You know? He's saying, you know, the only way I treated you, I didn't take any money from you. Forgive me for that. Okay? He says, now I am ready to visit you for the third time. Sorry, he's coming back now the third time. And I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Isn't that nice? That's a nice thing. You want to say something really romantic to your wife? Say, I don't want what you can do. I want you. 
Yeah, isn't that pretty? Isn't that, oh, isn't that nice? You know, you know, lots of luck with that. So anyway, uh, <laughs> after all, he says, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I'm coming to give to you. He's their spiritual father. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you, yet crafty fellow that I am. Sarcastic again. I like this guy. I can relate to this. You crafty, odd, horrible, evil person that I am. I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and sent our brothers with him. Brother with him, Titus, did not exploit you. Did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage. <laughs> what kind of meetings I had? <laughs> Selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual sin and the debauchery in which they have indulged. He's referring back to his first letter where he's slamming some very bad behavior that some of these people were involved in. So he said, this will be in verse chapter 13. Now we're wrapping it up. This uh, will be my third visit to you. Every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a, a he's quoting from Deuteronomy here. Uh, Moses is writing. Uh, it's one of the earlier biblical references that theologians to this day uh, use the argument or, or stress out that it's in the mouth of two or three witnesses that everything is established, meaning that um, uh, for scriptures, let's say you see a scripture, and it's the only scripture in the Bible that references this. You ought not to build a doctrine on that scripture. And there's a few scriptures like this, some that don't make any sense. One part Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians about baptizing for the dead. What is he talking about? Nobody really knows. People say they, they don't know. They're guessing. And, and the real honest theologians will say, we don't know what he's talking about. There's, a, there's, several, in the first, there's several things we pointed out in 1 Corinthians, like what in the world is he talking about? Uh, but we're privy to a conversation that they've already had, and he's made, we don't know what he's referencing. But, uh, so, you know, we don't just start baptizing for dead people. Even though someone could say it's in the Bible. There is a group, Mormons actually do. They baptize for dead people. Uh, whenever they're really into uh, genealogies and stuff to see where people came from so you can, once you convert to Mormonism, we can find out all the names of your relatives so we can baptize for them as well. That's why if you go to things like Ancestry.com and those things, they are owned by Mormons. That's a big deal to them. Not that you can't go, it's fine, you know, to see where your uncle Jedediah comes from or whatever. But uh, the, uh, that's, they're really big on that and they, as their biblical reference is that one verse. The problem is all of other Christianity by and large, rejects it uh, because it fails the test of in the two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. I run to this all the time. You know, as a relationship speaker, I got this new book uh, called Being Found, which you can just get online right now, but you, it's being printed right now. It'll be here in a month or whatever. But uh, it's about talking to single women and men too, I mean, if they want to look at it, but it's in the voice of speaking to women about how to approach marriage. And, and, and I start challenging a lot of the foolishness that's taught in the church about um, you know, this idea that there's one special person out there for everybody, which is patently absurd. You know, this is from a chick flick. This isn't, this isn't the Bible. And, uh, and of course, they got all these psycho crazy people out there who on occasion just, <laughs> they get all mad about it. And they always go to Genesis chapter 24 where Moses, I'm uh, sorry, Abraham's servant was commanded Go uh, to, back to our hometown and find a cousin for Isaac to marry. And he's freaking out. He, he doesn't want to go. He says, just go. You got to find someone. Well, I can't find anybody. Well, well, then you're off the hook. But you need to go. 
So he goes and he's freaking out. He's praying, oh Lord, help me find the one that you've chosen for Isaac. So they all go to that one verse. See, God has chosen one special person for everyone. But it's the only time in the Bible that's ever verse that way. The rest of the, the bulk of it is who, you know, finding a wife, looking for a wife, taking a wife, choosing a wife. Paul in the New Testament, which is what you're really supposed to listen to, don't get caught up in Old Testament. If there's one time Christians get crazier than a bunch of bats in the belfry, they're quoting the Old Testament. That's when they get nuttier and fruitcakes. So these people quote this servant. Nobody even knows his name. He's not a great man of God. We don't know it. All it's doing is recording what he did and what he said. Doesn't say God approved of it. There's a part back there where this one guy, Jay Pethler, whatever his name is, he's going to battle and he prays, oh God, give me the victory. And if you give me the victory, I'll, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my tent. So he wins the battle and he comes thing, and the first thing that comes out of his tent is his daughter. And he freaks. But now he has to sacrifice the daughter. Well, scholars for years have been trying to backflip and try and explain what that, you know, they'll explain anything. I think that's exactly what he did. I think he toasted the chick. Okay? Because if you read in Psalms, David talks about the great sins that they were involved in during this time where they sacrificed their children. It was a common thing. Well, then why did God do that? It doesn't say God did it. It just says this idiot said it. That's all. What is this? I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his tent. Which I think is hilarious. Who do you think he thought would come out of his tent? The wife. I think it's hilarious, right? I think he's saying, God, give me this battle and, and I'll kill the old witch, is what he's saying. And what else is going to come out of the tent? A chicken? I mean, he doesn't know. He's thinking his wife's going to come out. And I'll off the old lady and we'll, we'll move on from there. So all of a sudden, his daughter comes out. He freaks out. He sacrifices his daughter. Well, how did God... No... Listen. This whole period of time is, is just anarchy. And, and even that time was more enlightened than this time about Abram. Abraham. Because this is before even the Ten Commandments show up. They don't know anything about God. Nothing. Zilch. Zip. Nada. And for contemporary Christians to still quote... Chapter, Genesis chapter 24 is that God has one chosen person for everybody. It's stupid. Good Lord, what the heck is that? Ignorance gone to seed because they want to be more like a chick flick than they want to be biblically accurate. And it fails the test of two or three witnesses. There's no other place in the Bible that it mentions such nonsense. Good grief. And I've, I've pointed this out before. Look. If there truly was one special person for everyone, let's say for one delusional minute, that's true. All it would take is for one person to get it wrong and the whole system falls apart. Right? If Sarah is supposed to marry Billy, but instead she marries Bob, what's Billy supposed to do? Now Billy marries Suzanne, who is supposed to marry Ralph. Well, now what's Ralph supposed to do? Now, Ralph marries Wilma, who's supposed to marry Fred. Now you got no Flintstones. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the thought that just one person would get it wrong. And here's the ultimate test that that teaching is pure nonsense. If Christians, these evangelical Christians, I'm an evangelical, but I'm not a crazy evangelical. These people are crazy. I call them anal evangelicals. That's what I call them, anal evangelicals. They're, they're just anal. Because they look for stuff that's just, they're always looking for the poopies everywhere. That's, that's all they do. They're just anal. So their whole thinking is, is uh, you know, if they really thought this way, whenever someone got, became a Christian who were already married, the first thing we do is insist they get divorced. Right? Because now they need to pray and ask that the Lord will bring them to the right person. Either we believe this or we don't, right? Well, they backpedal on that real fast. Christianity would be the destroyer of homes. We'd be a plague in the earth of children that would be traumatized, the lives that would be destroyed if we held on to such foolishness. Because if we really believe everybody has one special person, as soon as you get saved, get rid of the person you got now, and now we need to pray and see who the Lord gives you as, your, as a true soulmate. I mean, it's just craziness. It's just pure craziness. This whole thing with Abraham's servant, he didn't know anything about God. The only thing they knew about God was, was circumcision, that there was a God. In fact, okay, this is going to freak you all out, but I'm on a, I'm on a roll. Yeah. All right. If you read the story, Abraham says, they translate it like this. Abraham told him, I want you to promise me. And the Bible says he put his hand under his thigh and made a promise. 
Look it up. I, I challenge any of you to look it up. Google it. It wasn't his thigh. It was his junk. I am not kidding you. Look, when Jimmy Brasher told me this, I thought he was crazy. He said, look it up. I look it up. My mouth just went, how can I be 61 years of age and just now find this out? Because all the scholars will tell you that's exactly what it was. They used the word thigh because the Bible translators just couldn't bring themselves to say the junk. He literally made him get down and put his hands on his willy. He said, grab my willy and make this promise. And that's what he did. <laughs> Look it up, brother, I'm telling you. <laughs> Look it up, you get home. I guarantee you, you'll be shocked. In fact, there's, you, there's paintings in the Old Testament or, or, or uh, back in the uh, Middle Ages and stuff with it. And they'll see that event and you see the guy's hand up under, and that's what he's doing. They understood it. In fact, one of the theologians who says, was discovering, <laughs> talking about this, said, actually the whole picture of someone in the hands of praying, <laughs> that's where that comes from. Not by my estimation. I never think of that. And when I, oh, I mean, holy cow. That's what he did to make the promise. Seriously, I'll just take your word for it. Make your promise, I'll trust you on that one. But because in doing so, they weren't being crude. See, it's just it's crude to us because we're Westerners, see. We've got to understand the way the Bible, these people, it was, they were touching, he was touching the covenant. The covenant is circumcision. This was a holy thing to these people. It was a big stinking deal. And uh, so he promised this. So all of that, to say that is our standard, is so outrageous. Yet millions, I would say the bulk of Christian singles today still think about that verse as their standard and waiting for God to miraculously bring them the one. No wonder they're still 48 and still single. I mean, it's just pure nonsense. And it breaks this rule of in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Okay, you just don't take one verse and build a whole doctrine off of one verse. All right, you need to see several things. Uh, anyway, I think I beat that to death. All right, going on. He says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now I repeat it while I'm absent. He's threatening them now. Oh, he wouldn't threaten them. Yeah, he has several times. We've been reading it. We're pointing out. He says, you think I'm a nothing. You wait till I show up. This guy had the power of God on him big time. Why they're messing with him, I don't know. Now I said last week, I'd be afraid. I'm afraid he turned me into a frog or something. Now, Paul did not turn people into frogs. I was just being, what's the word? <laughs> no, there's another word for it. No, there's another word. <laughs> no, when you exaggerate something. What you? Hyperbolist. Hyperbole. I was using hyperbole. Right? Being a hyperbolist. I don't think he turned people into frogs. That would be more like witchcraft. I don't know what, but he was threatening them. I wouldn't mess with him. Somebody has that much power of God on him, I don't know, because he literally referred to it. This is several times now we read threat. He says, so, I warned you the first time, now, or second time, now I repeat while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned early or, or any of the others. What does that mean? I don't know. We don't know. But he's not to be trifled with. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. To be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So he's threatening them. He's had it with these people. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I'm absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up. That's why the power is not for tearing you down, but the threat is there nonetheless. We don't know what happened. There's no record. We have no idea. I wouldn't mess with him personally. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of peace and, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Here's a command to the Christian faithful. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right. Something most Western churches do not do. Uh, it's just, especially in America, that's just creepy, right? We don't do that. We shake hands. We'll give hugs, you know, but we don't kiss each other. Uh, and when he says kiss, we're not talking, okay, we're talking, we're talking, you know, on the cheek. Now, in many cultures, they still have Latin American cultures, Spanish cultures. Uh, uh, oftentimes, we'll come up with some, you see someone... Uh, in the forum, I'm talking to someone, they're dark, and they come up to me, we start speaking a little bit of Spanish, and I'm meeting for the first time, you watch me reach over and I'll kiss them. They'll actually step forward, they're expecting it. That's the culture, right? Yeah, yeah. Besame, besame mucho. Okay, so, that, <laughs> my cousin. So, uh, uh, that's the way it is. In Italy, they still do this, and they kiss each other, men kiss men, men kiss women, everybody just kisses, that's the thing. Uh, you know, which is really, discomforting when you kiss some really old geezer with, with a beard that's like razor blades, sharp. You were there, right? Did they do this to you? Oh, man, kissing everywhere, right? And you got these old guys going, mwah, mwah, and zing, zing, like, wow, that hurt. You know, so I mean, it's just the culture. They get that from this verse. We tend to be very, very select about some of the things we follow and some of the things that we don't. It is what, do I think it's a big deal? I do not. Paul doesn't tell us we're going to go to hell if we don't kiss each other. But, uh, but that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. All God's people here send their greetings. May, grace, may the grace uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Boom. Bada bing. We're done with uh, First and Second Corinthians, which brings us now back to Roman, or to the book of Acts, where we've been following along in all of this. So now we, are, we started out, we're in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, where it says in verse 1 that he set out for Macedonia, which is up here. That's when he gets up here, that's when he writes the second letter to the Corinthians. Okay, so now we do chapter 20, verse 2. All right, can you push the buttons back there fast enough for that? Okay, so it goes. So he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. There's a lot of churches along that route that he had established, you know. Um, Philippi, we get the letter to the Philippians, the Thess Thessalonians, we got that letter. Uh, he references the Bereans, all these people. So he goes through there. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, which is Corinth. So now he finally gets to the Corinthians. After all this writing, now he's arrived. And I think he stays there like three months. What does it say here? Uh, where he stayed for three months. Okay, so there. Now when he's there, he writes the next book. So we're going real slow here. Just in this little piece, he's doing all this writing. This is when he now writes to the Roman church. So we're going to jump right away now into the epistle to the Romans. All right, so if you're following along, flipping your Bible to Roman. So now this is interesting. He's never been here, okay? He says he wants to go to visit. Oh, he's going to go visit, all right. Because <laughs> what's going to happen uh, is, as we'll pick up back, when we get back to the book of Acts, we'll see he intended to go over here, but he couldn't, so he came back around here. Uh, no, 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 wait. Where are we? Da, 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 da. Yeah, he comes back around here. And anyway, he winds up going back to Jerusalem to visit. When he gets there, he gets arrested. And then they drag him all the way back to Rome to stand trial. So we're really coming to the end of Paul's life here as we're reading in the book of Acts. But more epistles to go uh, because he's writing these letters to the church. But whereas every place else he's been there and he knows these people intimately, and stuff, that is not now the case in Rome. So he's writing to people. Some of the people he probably has met and he references them uh, because these people would travel around and so he knew some of the people there and undoubtedly he knew somebody who was going there, that's why he gave him the letter. So he was acquainted, but he'd never actually been there with them and never really uh, uh, met with them. All we know now is Christianity is spreading faster than he can get there. 
which is kind of cool, right? So this thing's going nuts. I mean, everywhere the gospel is preached, it is just spreading like fire because people are experiencing God. As I was talking about Sunday, the thing that makes Christianity so unique, it's not us trying to reach a God out there. We don't try to chant our way to find that God there. We don't have to sit there and go through all these rituals, oh, la, 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 to try to reach that God out there. Uh, God, when you come to Christ, he's the God who's in here, and it becomes real. And this is something they had never experienced as these pagans. And they would start praying and asking God to intervene, and God would answer their prayers, which you have to understand. When you pretty much pray to a rock that looks like a frog, you generally don't get your prayers answered. Okay? And all the idolatry and stuff that they did, and they had done it all their lives, and by and large, nothing had really ever trans, uh, transformed them. Nothing had changed much. They, in desperation, were praying out to all kinds of idols and stuff, hoping that by luck or some way they would get a God's attention because they had multiple gods hoping that one of them, they could find favor with one of them. That was their experience. This Christianity comes along. They experience God. They are suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, something they had never experienced before. God is right here. It's real. It's cool. I mean, they gather together. They feel something they've never felt before. Many of you remember the first time you walked into a church, a church like this or whatever, where the Spirit of God really is, and it's like, wow, what is this place? There's something different here. You know, it's Jesus. Wherever two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. This is something no one had ever experienced before in the world. Nothing like it. So it just starts spreading like crazy. Now it's way over here. Who knows where? Now this is the world at the time. And then it just continues to spread and spread and spread. And it's continuing to spread even to this day uh, all over the world, this incredible message. So Paul is in Corinth. He's there for three months. It doesn't tell us what he does. I would love to know how all this got resolved, what kind of butt kicking happened. Maybe they all backed down and asked Paul to forgive them and everything was good when he got there. That was really the purpose of the letter, by and large, is, you know, let's clear the air before I get there. Uh, if I'd gotten that letter from Paul, even if I was giving him a hard time knowing who he was and the power he had, I would have conceded before he ever showed up. So I, to, what le to what level they would have still been resistant, we don't know. Anyways, he's there now with him. He's there for three months. While he's there, he writes this letter to the Roman church. We'll get into this a little bit. We've got 20 minutes to go and our Bible study will be done. But uh, so Romans, the first chapter, remember the Bible was never written in chapters and verses. These were just scrawling letters that they wrote. Uh, we added the numbers so we could find where we could all have a point of reference to find these verses. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who to as his earthly life was a descendant of David, uh, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, and appointed in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's God in the flesh, son of man, but yet son of God, both at the same time. All right? Uh, through him we receive grace and apostleship, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. He's basically starting out by letting them know that he is an apostle who is called to the Gentiles. And obviously, this, he's really in Gentile territory here. Yet, nonetheless, there's still a lot of Christ, uh, Jewish Christians there, uh, which we'll see as soon as he starts talking and getting into his... Uh, explanation of faith and stuff to these people. Romans is, is a really interesting book. We'll get into it. At times, it's, it, I feel like I get kind of mired in it. It's, it's, at times, it's difficult, you know, and we'll just plot through it together, and I don't claim to be a brilliant theologian that understands it all. There's ways that he writes and talks at times that's confusing, but the point is always clear, okay? Remember, we're talking, we're trying to understand conversation that happened 2,000 years ago in a different language. Man, you have a hard time truly getting the sense of translating English to Spanish and Spanish to English, right? I mean, just even today. So, I mean, it's, it's no small deal here trying to translate these words. And, not, and even if he spoke in English, just the way they would speak and the way they would make arguments and, and debate things is different than we do today, okay? Uh, even a thousand years ago in English, I doubt any of us here could even read it. You ever look at old English? I'm not talking King James. I'm talking, you know, a thousand. It's, it's virtually impossible to read. It's, it's very, very difficult to read. 
that in language changes over time, even to this day. By the time we got to the King James Bible, which is 1600s or whatever, uh, that form of English stayed for a long time because of the King James Bible. We kind of locked into that. But then by the time my generation came along, now when I was growing up, we all still used the King James Bible. Really until about the 80s, I think, it was still held very dearly to people. Uh, All the Bible verses that I have memorized are all memorized in King James. When I prepare for my sermons and go for these verses, I always Google in King James. It's the only way I can find these things, you know, and then I put it into the modern day English and stuff like that. So that's, that's how I was raised. Uh, but that's where we have the, the therefore these and thou's and wherefore this and this is a thousand, you know, whatever. So it's, it's a little difficult to understand. Those of us who studied it, we understand it, but very few people today uh, do that. Uh, and even now, the language keeps changing, you know. Uh, if the Lord tarries, doesn't come for another thousand years, which I think is highly unlikely. I don't see how this mess continues much more than a hundred years. Just if I, I'm not sure it'll make it to the end of the years. <laughs> Sometimes, you know. But if he does, I mean, at some point, someone's going to have to translate to other people what we meant. Okay? You know, if we found something confusing, you know, uh, you know earlier we might have written that people who follow thoughts that are contrary to common sense uh, stretch the imagination and really struggle our understanding. Today we just go, when we see crazy, we go, what up with that? Right? We all know what we're talking about, right? So somebody, somebody's going to have to translate, what does what up with that mean? Right? Were they looking up? What was that? You know, it's, it's just... It's our way of saying all the fancy things that I just said a second ago. So it just language keeps changing. So anyway, at times as we get into it, you'll, I'll feel like we're kind of getting caught in the, because the way he talks is like, I don't know, what is he? But then he, by the time he's done, it becomes crystal clear what he's saying. So, you know, just hang in there with us. Because in Romans, and he, we had a little bit of this in some of the earlier writings, but it really seems to get thick in Romans at times when he discusses this whole thing of grace and forgiveness and sin and and whatnot. Uh, Real interesting. And uh, you can tell clearly he is writing to a combination of Jewish and non-Jewish Christians together, uh, trying to make sense together with them. The first epistle, remember we read the first epistle, was written by James. James is the first letter uh, in the New Testament that was written. As he's writing, he says, James, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. He's writing to Jewish Christians. At that time, virtually all Christians were Jewish. They couldn't even get their heads around non-Jewish people being Christians. Well, suddenly that all got cleared up. And then, so we're in this period now where the church is filled with both Jewish and non-Jewish. That's why you'll see those references a lot. Uh, we get to the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. We're not even really sure who even wrote that. That seems to have been written mostly to Jewish Christians, a Jewish congregation. Uh, and then eventually Christianity... Uh, was overwhelmingly dominated by non-Jewish Christians and to the point today that, uh, you know, the way that we are today. So there's kind of this transitional period. Anyway, so that's what he's talking about. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, uh, the way may be open for me to come to you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Kind of beware what you pray for, (laughs) kind of thing. Because he went all right in chains all the way back to be tried and killed in Rome. So I pray that I come to you. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. He's a very spiritual man, very powerful. He would lay hands on people to receive spiritual gifts. I mean, this, is, this was powerful, powerful stuff uh, that they were experiencing. That's what he wants to do. Uh, he says, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. So he wants to come. He wants to win souls there. He wants to make a difference. He's looking forward to this. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. 
talk about a place that was very multicultural, Greeks, non-Greeks, Romans, Jews, non-Jews, I mean, the whole deal. Uh, and he's eager to do this, because, and then this very famous verse in the Bible uh, that is quoted many, many times, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So that verse, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. At times, it's easy to feel a little embarrassed because what we teach, as Paul admitted, is to unbelievers foolishness. This is crazy, you know, and it's hard not to feel that from them at times. But he says, I push through that. I'm not shamed by this because this gospel, this thing that seems so foolish, is what changes people's lives. Even though people might argue with you and debate back to you, that, that, I don't believe in God. At the end of the day, this is real stuff. And it is powerful. And this simple message that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to forgive us of our sins is a powerful message. As simple as it is, and as some would sneer at how stupid it is, this is the message that has been changing lives for the last 2,000 years and in powerful ways. And while we may not see some of the miracles that are as common as it was apparently in their day, still there are miracles that are constantly happening and God answering prayers and doing neat things and just the miracle of changing us. You know, as I said Sunday, you know, thank God, you know, I may not be what I'm supposed to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Why? Because he keeps changing me. And he keeps, and all this is by the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in us. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right? Now, Paul goes off on this blitzkrieg talking about sin. And he does it real early. <laughs> He's barely introduced himself. And now he just goes into this thing. Let's read it. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that they, so the people are without excuse. Even though they haven't heard the Bible, maybe they never heard the Ten Commandments, what he's arguing is even in the most darkest regions of the world, the divine nature of God is evident to see if people are looking and seeing God's handiwork in the earth and the stars. All this stuff didn't happen uh, by itself, okay? The hand of God. Uh, and then he starts talking now about all these sins. Now he, he goes into a series of sins and uh, he starts out with the two big ones. The biggest one he's going to mention first. I'm getting a different pair of glasses because my eyes aren't adjusting. <laughs> I need new glasses. You know, I got bifocals. So when you're trying to read, read close, you go like this and everything gets clear. I keep going like this and it's not getting clear. And I, I'm like this. And I can, so I need to get new glasses. I got to put in the reading glasses. Oh, I can see it. There we go. It was getting blurrier and blurrier. All right. So now he says, uh, he starts out talking about what they would all agree as two of the most horrible sins, which is, number one, idolatry, which to a Jewish person would be extremely bad. I mean, they knew by this point, idolatry is a bad thing. Uh, and the second one that he starts is homosexuality, which according to them at this time, is this is very bad. And not just to them. It's interesting. I'm going to pull out this great big book so I look like I'm intelligent. Uh, and that's why I need my glasses, because this is really tiny type. <laughs> okay. Uh, Greek culture rarely frowned upon and indeed frequently promoted male homosexual intercourse. He's, he's writing from Greece and to these Romans, who are all part and, and uh, affected by some degree to this. Uh, many well-to-do males lusted after boys and had sex with them. Because most males did not marry much before the age of 30, Younger men had three primary opportunities for sex. Slaves, prostitutes, or with each other. Ah! Now, this is what fries my Puerto Rican pancakes. I'm going to put them out of the glasses again so I can look at you and yell. All right? So, so, so this is what... Now, it's interesting. These theologians are saying 
the reason they were giving to, given to such bad sexual, because most of them didn't get married till the age of 30. Well, man, doesn't that sound like today? Right? Now, when I grew up, and for the bulk of human history, men and women generally got married before they hit 20. All right? Virtually every theologian will tell you, and Bible scholar says, beyond a doubt, the Virgin Mary was about 14 years old when she became pregnant with Jesus and was with uh, Joseph. Now, I'm not advocating your 14-year-old get married and have babies. I'm just saying this was very, very common. The idea of delaying marriage so long, I believe, this is my personal opinion, I believe Satan pushes this thinking into people's heads because it undoubtedly invariably leads to immorality. It always has, it did back then, and it still does today. And even Christians who foolishly encourage their young people to wait, 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 wait as long as they're married. That's why the church is just eaten alive today by people having sex before they're married, uh, of the problems with pornography and, and, and uh, masturbating and all these crazy addictions that people are getting in because these young, what you're trying to tell your young boys from the time he's 13 about this sex drive that hits his body, he's, that he can't do anything about it for 18 years. And of course, we try to, well, just pray more. Get an accountability partner. Which, you know, if that's what it takes, you know. I just think it's ridiculous. All, they got all these theories, you know, to make the, the, do a promise ring. Make a purity pledge. Which all contemporary studies, even Christian studies show, it only works when they're younger teenagers. By the time they hit college, it's done. They have as much more immoral, I'm talking about kids raised in our churches. Churches like ours as immoral as kids who never went to church their entire lives. Why? Because this idea of delaying marriage is pure, unadulterated nonsense. Now, if someone chooses to stay single, all power to them. Someone says, I don't want any involvement with anybody else, so I want to go through college and everything else first, then fine. I have no problem. You want to wait till 92 to get married? Knock yourself out. But what they're doing is they're going ahead and encouraging the kids to go ahead and date and do all those other things and just don't get married. Well, what do you think's going to happen, mom and dad? Someone emailed me today, Pastor, how, how old before the kids should start dating? Uh, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I have a gift for that. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not honestly, because I know some people feel bad. Well, I did that with my kids. I know, but listen, you start letting your kids date till, at 14? What do you think they're doing by the time they're turning 18? You think they're having Bible studies? I should talk to one pastor. That's what he thought. He came to my conference. I said, oh, great. He starts talking to me about his daughter. Shows him a picture of his daughter. She's a babe. I mean, she's gorgeous. Wow, just stunning young lady. Did she come with you? Because I always love it when young people. No, 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 no. She stayed home because her and her boyfriend are, are doing uh, uh, homework. <laughs> I said, really? Oh, yeah, they do it all. They go to the bedroom, close the door. They do homework all day long. <laughs> I'm, and this is a pastor telling this. I'm looking. I didn't say anything. I was just out of respect. I told you, right? We should respect pastors. All you pinheads on Facebook. Don't be writing me, straightening me out with my doctrines and everything else. I, don't, I can't imagine people. There's a lot of arrogance in the church today. No humility. You're supposed to honor your pastor. I hear pastors all the time on Christian TV. I think they're nuttier than a bat. But I would never in a million years imagine myself writing and trying to straighten out that other pastor's theology. That's not our place. A lot of arrogance in the church today. Don't be doing that. These little guys, theologians, sitting in the basement in their underwear. You're trying to straighten out preachers like me. Stop it. Stuff it. Good Lord. Arrogance. What was I talking about? I don't even know. Oh, so I, I look at this guy and I don't say anything out of respect, but I'm thinking, how can you be so dumb and still breathe? <laughs> All day long, they go into her room with the door closed so they can do homework. They do this all the time. And I promise you, if mom comes up to the door, you know what's the first thing she does? Hello? Some of you people, you tell me, you, you knock before you enter. Well, it's my kid's room. Like heck it is. They ain't paying for nothing yet. You stop paying the rent, now you got a room. Until then, it's my room. I get to come in anytime. Hello. <laughs> they knock and wait for them to get in a position. Oh, yeah, just a minute. Oh, I'm putting our books away. Okay, come on. All right, that's, that was free. 
I only got a few minutes here. But anyway, these theologians, these, these writers, these brilliant stuff saying, because men did not marry much before the age of 30, they had to do something. So they either had sex with prostitutes uh, or other men or slaves. And oftentimes those slaves were young boys. Okay. Uh, By the first century, many upper-class Roman males had adopted the Greek values towards homosexual behavior, exhibiting such conduct at fashionable parties. At the same time, Roman society as a whole was far less disposed to such practices than Greek society had been, especially that of Athens, which was really a mess. Some Roman philosophers, like Seneca, spoke against the practice. Some philosophers regarded sex with members of their own gender as against nature. Jewish society opposed homosexual behavior even more. Literature from early Jewish sources gives indication of Jewish adulterers, Jewish fornicators, Jewish males committing sexual sins, but homosexuality is treated in Jewish writings as distinctly a Gentile sin. They didn't mess with it. They did those other things, but they wouldn't do that. Jewish writers also viewed homosexual behavior as being against nature and as a sin which warranted God's judgment. As Paul discussed how God judges Jews and Gentiles, he made a point that Jewish Christians, readers who looked down on the Gentiles would fully grasp. He made a point that they would fully grasp. Because this is what he does. Enough of these pinheads. Okay. What he does is he starts out talking about sins that almost all of them would have agreed, oh, that's a sin, that's a sin. And then he starts adding all the other sins that all of us are guilty of. And the point is, he's trying to say, look, we have all sinned. Don't be just picking one group of people and hammering them for their behavior. That's something that evangelical Christians do to this day. You know, they love to just jump on homosexuality and scream and holler about that. Hey, there's a lot longer list than that. All right? Don't be mean to people and go slam. You're saying it's okay? I'm not saying it's okay. It's pretty clear that that and a whole bunch of things are not okay. We'll get into that next week because we're running out of time now. But this isn't to go around beating up on gay people or something, you know. It's just insane. You know, and people say, well, the Bible says in the Old Testament. Again, it's always Old Testament. The crazies come out. They should be killed if they're homosexual. It also says if you disobey your parents, you should be killed. It also said, if you curse, you should be killed. That would wipe out a whole lot of you. All right? It also says, if you work on Saturday, you should be killed. I mean, the go-to in everything is, someone's out of line, kill them. You know. Now, <laughs> holy cow! You know, they, they were brutal. They're, now, what's interesting is they say there's very little evidence in Jewish history that they ever killed anybody for these sins. What it was, was that was the standard. Don't mess with this stuff. We take this seriously. It's kind of like Jesus did. Uh, Sometimes, you know, people get at me because I'm a hyperbolist. I exaggerate things. I think Jesus was a bit of a hyperbolist. You can't possibly read Jesus and not think. If you take everything Jesus literally said, talking about temptation, he says, if your eye offend you, plop it out of your head. Well, there'd be a lot of one-eyed guys sitting here right now. (laughs) All right? He said, if your hand's doing something it shouldn't be doing, cut it off. A lot of us would be having stubby arms right now, okay? So do we, does anybody think Jesus really wants people to plug out their eyeballs and cut off their hands? No. Any more than a lot of these other things. So I, I think it's, it's when these try, guys try to be very literal, not understanding that they are speaking in hyperbole to make a very strong point. Because Jesus said it's better to lose your hand and get into heaven than to keep both hands and go into hell. The point is, don't do it. That's the point. And anyway, Paul then goes on and he starts with these two big yo mama sins that are, oh, yeah, so awful. And then he starts adding, I'm going to cheat here a little bit and just give you a little inside deal. He starts adding to it uh, envy, strife, gossiping, slander, insolent, arrogant, boastful, disobeying parents even adds into there. People who have no fidelity, no love, no mercy. He goes on and on. Because what he's trying to set up here is that he starts with the two big yo mamas, idolatry, to the Jewish mind. Because a lot of these people are Jewish. He's writing to the Jewish mind and to the homosexual. There's a lot of, oh, that's horrible. And then he just keeps adding to the list. And he keeps adding to the list. And keeps, by the time he's done, no one can escape. Because the point he's setting up, which he's going to make, which we'll see uh, next week when we pick this up again, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Nobody here, no one can claim that they are without sin. Even Jesus, remember they dragged this lady out. They caught her in the very act of adultery. We should stone her. The Bible says we should stone her. Moses said we should stone her. What should you do? Jesus said, hey, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all went, yeah. And they walked away, right? So that's what he's setting up. So he's starting out, really starts nailing this thing about sins. And, and we'll see as he gets into this. All to set it up um, for when we get to, I forget where it is, somewhere in the third chapter, this, this big statement that everyone has sinned. That's the purpose. Because if you don't understand that, you don't understand Christianity. The reason Jesus came is because everybody has messed this up at whatever level. Thank God for his grace. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, let's pray together. How's you go? Father, I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your word. Help us to grow from it and grow in our understanding. Uh, and uh, we just commit continued growth by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you. You guys can hang out for a little bit. Don't forget to pick up your kids at 8 o'clock.